On Monday, June 5th, The Ringer is launching Binge Mode, a podcast dedicated to rewatching and giving expert analysis on our favorite TV shows. For the next six weeks, my editor, Mallory Rubin, and my other podcast co-host, Jason Concepcion, will dive deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. From theories to history to their best impersonations of Robert Baratheon, watch along with our Thrones experts. The first 10 episodes of Binge Mode drop Monday, June 5th, which correspond to Season 1 of Game of Thrones. Every Monday after that, we'll release a new batch of 10 episodes leading up to the premiere of Game of Thrones Season 7. You can subscribe to Binge Mode now on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. So is my colleague and my co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, sir. Ben, I am so thrilled to see that the bracket has come out. I'm looking at a red-hot LSU team. I'm looking at the draw maybe opening up a little bit for Indiana. They're finally not paired with Louisville in a regional. They could get past Kentucky and NC State. I am ready and raring to go to watch 16 hours of baseball every day, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, all right. That's all I have to say about the NCAA tournament. Got it out of your system. All Did right. you know? Oh, wait. Except to say this. Our, yeah. our colleague Roger Sherman started tweeting about college baseball because Northwestern made a run in the Big Ten tournament, which is, I think, the the two most predictable things in college sports are that I will talk about baseball when no one else wants to hear about it. And whenever <laughs> Northwestern does something good, Roger will, will uh, start <laughs> tweeting about it. So yeah. part of me was hoping for Northwestern to, to steal that bid in the Big Ten just so I'd have an ally, but that's not to be <laughs> an Iowa wind up taking that bid. So it's too bad. Good program, though. Like they made a, a good coaching hire. Northwestern did, so I, I could see them turn into something significant in the, in the next couple of years. I could sit out our next episode, just clear the stage, have you and Roger go deep on college baseball. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about the Astros in just a second. Then we're going to do a, a larger discussion about rebuilding and how the Astros and the Cubs have colored our expectations for rebuilding teams. Quick question for you. Pitchers have been terrible as hitters this year. That's not news. They're been always terrible, years, yes. but yeah, but they've been getting progressively worse over the years. And this year they're off to a 128, 163, 161 start, which is close to the worst ever. 2006 was just about as bad. 2014 was actually slightly worse if you look at the full season stats, but this is about as bad as pitchers have ever been. Does that affect your DH, no DH opinion at all? We haven't had the DH debate on this podcast, which is okay because everyone else in the world has had the DH debate for the last 40 years. But I wonder whether there is a level, and I don't know your stance on expanding the DH, contracting the DH, but is there a level of pitcher incompetence at the plate that changes your mind about the DH debate or is your mind made up? There probably is a level. So I'm very anti-DH. And to me, it's about the, well, what it really probably is, I think it was uh, Bill Parker, late of the platoon advantage, had a theory that you are pro or anti-DH based on what team you followed as a kid. And mm -hmm. I grew up following a National League team, so I am anti-DH by those rules. But for me, it's it's not about a pitcher's going to make an out, what, like 85% of the time, uh, mm -hmm. based on yeah. what you said. Like a normal position player is going to make an out 68% of the time. Like pitchers, do, if you look at it in terms of probability of making it out, a pitcher's not that much worse than than a hitter. They're half as likely to get a hit, but they're not twice as likely to make an out, for instance. <laughs> right. So a lot of the joy of watching a pitcher hit a home run or even just get on base comes from it being unexpected. And there's probably if pitchers were hitting like 045, 060, 070 or something like that, then uh -huh. I'd be like, pull the plug. This is just ridiculous. But we're not like it's not so rare that a pitcher will get on base that I don't get that temporary amusement. And also uh -huh. like. I thrive on other people's unhappiness. So like, I kind of <laughs> like it when a rally gets killed, when the pitcher comes up and with two outs and everybody's like, Oh, fine. Like just that groan gives me life. Yeah. I have less strong opinions about the DH than I think most people do. 
I wouldn't miss pitcher hitting, really. I, I think they are very terrible at hitting, and I think it's mostly unpleasant to watch them hit. Although, as many people have pointed out, the worse the typical pitcher gets at hitting, the more exciting it is when a pitcher does defy your expectations. So, mm-hmm. in that sense, it's more exciting now when a pitcher does get a hit, just because our baseline for pitcher hitting keeps getting worse and worse. But there is a level, I think, at which the successes would be so rare that it would be worth all the failure and i think we're probably close to that level for me but some variety is nice also and i don't know if the debates are fun i'm i've had enough of the debates i think but i think just having different types of baseball is not a bad thing but yeah. i continue to track the plunging pitcher slash line over the years and uh, i am curious to see how low it can go I wonder how much like whether it's Christian Betancourt or Michael Lorenzen or Ross Stripling's pinch run a couple times for the Dodgers this year. I wonder if as benches get shorter, we're going to see pitchers get better at hitting or running maybe like one or two per team just out of necessity. But who knows? That's Mm -hmm. that's a whole other podcast. So we should (laughs) stick a pin in this and come back to it when we're even more out of ideas than we are. now. (laughs) Okay. did you want to memorialize Mike Trout briefly? I just want to say, yeah, I would just briefly, I would say that everybody go read Ben's article, which ends with a very long paragraph about how wrong I am, which I thought was a a nice touch on your part. Um, But one of the most special things about Trout, I think, was that he was so good that we sort of thought he didn't, or at least I thought he didn't play by the normal rules of the being susceptible to injury. Like I thought that he was somehow impervious to, to these banal things like you know tearing up your hand sliding like i didn't think Mm -hmm. that happened to mike trout and it's just it's a bummer to find out that he's not made of adamantium yeah i'm gonna be in mourning for a month or two however long he's out i was really enjoying monitoring his performance on a day-to-day basis like that it happened this year and not in like 2014 that's that's the second worst thing about this he was at his best this year he had found a way to get even better and i love mike trout because as I mentioned in the piece, he is the guy that people like you and me, we we get to hype him as much as, you know, the typical hot takes about this player is the best of all time or whatever. And it's not based on numbers or evidence. And it falls to people like us often to sort of sound the sample size alarm and start pointing out, look, and this is unsustainable and here's regression and there's regression. And it can be kind of a downer to have to play that role sometimes. But Mike Trout is the guy that not that that you need advanced stats by any stretch to to see that he's excellent. Just the eye test works and the basic stats tell largely the same story, but it's always been wins above replacement player that was able to capture everything he does and put it in that historical context and make it clear that he was off to and is off to the best start of any player ever, essentially. And so it's always fun when we get to get away from the caveats and the caution and just say, no, pay attention attention to what you're watching. This guy is as amazing as it seems. And if anything, we're not paying close enough attention. And that's the other sad thing is that it seemed like everyone was waking up to how amazing Mike Trout is. This seemed like the season when it kind of dawned on everyone, not just some small section of the baseball blogosphere that this is an all-time talent and we are witnessing something historic here. And then just as that realization arrived, he departed. But we hope that he will be back in not too long. And he does still have a chance to be the most valuable player in the American League, even if he does miss almost a couple of months. So we will be back with a little discussion about rebuilding teams, but let's take a quick break and then we will bring on our guest, Ryan Dunsmore, to talk Astros. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you don't need. And when you use your Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Much like my extremely pale skin, their Dr. Carver Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave. It helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights 
razor bumps. I need all the help I can get in this department. I'm sort of a self-taught shaver, and I didn't teach myself very well. I don't look forward to shaving. I want it to be over with as quickly as possible. Dollar Shave Club makes it pretty close to painless, so you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping, and after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. In your first month's box, you get a weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at the regular price, and there are no hidden fees and no commitments. So if you suddenly stop growing hair, you can cancel anytime you like. You can only get this offer at dollarshaveclub.com slash MLB show. That's one word, dollarshaveclub.com slash MLB show. I also want to tell you about Simply Safe. As I know very well, getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially when you think you just heard a noise downstairs. Think about it. What do you do in that situation? You could turn on all the lights and keep watch. You could check your kids' beds every hour, sleep with one eye open, hide under the covers, or you can rest easy knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. When you install your Simply Safe home security system, you're arming your home with powerful sensors that actually tell you if a door opens or a window breaks. There's a 105 decibel siren that alerts you at the first sign of trouble and a dedicated a team of security professionals watching over you 24-7, ready to send the police. With Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts, and around-the-clock monitoring is only $14.99 a month. So don't spend another night second-guessing your home's safety. Get Simply Safe and get some rest. Go to simplysafe.com slash ringer and get a special 10% discount when you order today. That's simplysafe.com slash ringer for 10% off your order. One last time, simplysafe.com slash ringer. Okay, so the Houston Astros are about as hot as it's possible for a baseball team to be. They are on a seven-game winning streak. They are coming off a 22-7 and May. They just scored 40 runs in a three-game series, which included an 11-run inning in a big six-run comeback. They are scalding. It's not a huge surprise that the Astros are good, but they're playing at a 1998 Yankees pace to this point in the season. They've outscored their opponents by 90 runs. They're the only team with a double-digit division lead, so this seems like the right time to talk about the Astros. And to do that, we have Ryan Dunsmore, who is an editor of the SB Nation Astros blog, Crawfish Boxes, also the acting sports editor of the Fort Bend Herald. Hey, Ryan. Is this all good? This seems very weird. This is all... <laughs> yeah, I, Something I mean... <laughs> about Houston always seems to go wrong. I just, I don't... Well, I was just looking at your archive to see when you started writing for Crawfish Boxes, and it was February 2013, so you were there for the worst of times, and now you're here for the best of times. I assume that it is a little bit easier to do game threads and recaps nowadays than it was then, and I assume you're getting more interview requests than you were then. You know, I actually have about like four lined up in the last, for the next 24 <laughs> hours, so I, and I literally got a t- just got off a TV interview, so it's been very... <laughs> weird um uh, i never would have thought anyone wanted to hear this this uh see this ugly face and ugly voice so uh it's thank you astros for putting me on the on the tiniest of maps yeah well you suffered through the 51 and 111 days so i think you earned it at this point <laughs> I, I remember dreaming longingly about robbie grossman so yes it's come a long way <laughs> so the astros came in i think as the consensus favorite we knew they were a good baseball team there was a sense that they perhaps underachieved or, or got a little unlucky last year in the way that they finished the year and the way that they upgraded over the offseason. It seemed like this was going to be the year when the Astros rebuild was complete, but have they exceeded your expectations? And if so, in what ways other than just the record? They've exceeded my expectations with guys that I didn't expect to necessarily be a main factor in their success so far. I've had Marvin Gonzalez and Jake Marisnik find another gear in their offense. Dallas Keuchel's found his form again. Lance McCullers has pitched up to where he's supposed to be. A lot of the guys have been exactly where I kind of expected them to be. I expected them to be at the front of the the AL West standings here. Now, did I expect them to be 10-plus games over at the nearest competition? No, but uh, I expect them to be right where they are right now. Uh, best in baseball was kind of a the kind of a ceiling. So it's it's I don't say it as necessarily I'm surprised, but I, I'm, I'm seeing more of that 2015 potential kind of coming to fruition finally and everything working the right way. So one thing that separates the Astros from other teams and what separates some of the teams that are chasing them from other teams that have struggled is that not only have they jumped out to this great start, but the 
teams that were supposed to be chasing them have scuffled. Seattle has been beyond shit ass this year. Uh, Texas, who they they went like four and 15 last year against like that was the reason they didn't make the playoffs last Mm -hmm. year was they couldn't beat Texas and the Astros are 17 and six against the division and Texas has struggled. LA just lost trout Seattle. We've already talked about. So how much of this is the Astros beating up on teams that have struggled to get it together? And how much of this is legit? Do you think? I think about 80% is legit. 85%. Um, I think that that yes, the AL West, a lot, all the teams had warts, but they're all, kind of high floor teams uh, minus maybe the, the athletics who always will be the most pesky of teams in the division. It, it really will come down to how far ahead they will be in this division. If they're able to finish the job against the Rangers, they always, the Rangers always find, find the way to not necessarily be the anti Astros being the, the, the anti analytics and, and grit and grind and kind of they've embraced that mentality. But if they can, if the Astros can, can have a good showing against the Rangers and kind of prove, Hey, we're supposed to be the best team in this division. We're playing ahead of a, a team that we've struggled the last two years against. I don't see why why they couldn't just run away with the division. Yeah, just I mean, looking at the lineup, there aren't really any holes. There's Nori Aoki. There's a, a few guys who are not having great seasons. That's about the worst that you can say about this lineup. And even coming into Wednesday's game when they scored 17 runs, their park adjusted metrics already compared with really the best offensive teams of the last 15, 20 years. They're up there with the 2003 Red Sox, 2007 Yankees in terms of just production per plate appearance. Carlos Correa started slow and just had an unbelievable month. So it seems like, you know, they had the the homegrown guys who are really good. And then they have, it seems, chosen wisely with the veteran supplements that they went after this winter. So I, I don't like, is there something, at least on the offensive side, that they are lacking? It just seems like this is the most top to bottom, strong, well-rounded lineup that we've seen in some time, at least a, a rival of the Blue Jays of a couple of years ago. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. It is one of the most just even lineups across uh, top to bottom. It, it, the whole biggest holes they had were left field and catcher last year. You had Jason Castro stuck out a ton. They really couldn't find a guy to regularly be out there, and Kobe Rest wasn't necessarily the consistent. Uh, and then Jake Marisnik wasn't really didn't really have his swing down here. He's found it found it this year, but really adding Josh Reddick, adding Brian McCann, adding Norioki has just kind of changed the face of this lineup and really added a bunch of guys that like to take a bunch of pitches during at-bats, like to like to work the count here, like to do things the Astros in the past wouldn't have do. The, the, the face of the Astros, I feel like, a few years ago was Chris Carter, and they've really come a long way and kind of had a lot of quality at-bats. No, no bigger uh, picture of that is Marwin Gonzalez, who has probably made a habit this year of having 10-plus pitch at-bats and then turning those into home runs. Yeah, 308, 401, 638 with 12 homers in 154 plate appearances for Marwin Gonzalez. What gives? What's going on here? The thing I can only find is that he's this season he's dropped his hands and it always seems to be like the magic words of, oh, this is this is the turnaround. That's what that that was the magic keys, drop your hands and and, and everything works out from there. Uh outside of that, I I, I don't really know. Uh, there hasn't been something that really is pointed out to, hey, this guy's made a clear adjustment. He's always been a quality tough at bat. Not necessarily starting rotate or starting lineup quality, but but definitely enough to to be on the bench. He's been he's one of those guys that's still uh, you can you, you can gauge on how long he's been on the roster. He did, didn't wear the uh, the new the new throwback whatever the current version of the uniform is. Him and Jose Altuve and Dallas Keiko are the only guys that still are on the roster from that time. I think 2012. So he he's earned his spot. He just kind of has figured it out this year. Yeah, he was one of those guys. I sort of jokingly last year called him the guy who makes the Astros go. Because one of the things I like about the team so much is A.J. Hinch has been historically pretty good at hiding his players' weaknesses, putting just through platoons and defensive substitutions. And because Marwin turned just inexplicably from a really awful hitter in his first couple years in the league into a league average hitter over from like 2014 to 16 and could play everywhere but catcher and center field pretty much like he allowed Hinch to make a lot of those in-game adjustments. And now he's been the best hitter on the team so far. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you haven't seen some of the top prospects for the Astros like A.J. Reed or uh, Colin Moran or something, because Marwin takes all their jobs. Uh, he literally can you can anytime someone needs a rest, Marwin's there to take the day for him. So about the only 
quibble you could have with this team, I guess, is on the defensive end, and I'm not even sure that you really can there either. There's some disagreement in the defensive stats when it comes to the Astros, and I wonder where you stand on this. So heading into Wednesday's game, the Astros ranked seventh in baseball, according to Baseball Prospectus's defensive metric, fielding runs above average. They ranked ninth according to defensive runs saved, and then they were all the way down at 27th according to ultimate zone rating. So either they're very good, pretty good, or really bad. (laughs) So it's rare that you see that kind of disagreement. So what do you think based on what you've seen and just what we know about these players? Well, the Astros have always been one of the most heavy shifting teams. I don't know really how that that affects the certain stats here, but I would say they have one of the best outfields in in baseball when they have uh, Marisnik out there with Reddick and and Springer. Uh, That's bar none unquestionable there. Uh, The biggest hole, I, I would say, comes from when you have Aoki out there or you have at first base, you've had some growing pains with Yuri Gurriel just fielding the position and, and doing some basic first base things. I, I don't really see there's any kind of issues that they necessarily have. If you want to have the discussion of, hey, they, they'd be even better defensively if you moved uh, uh, Carlos Correa over to third base and Alex Bregman, I feel like you could have that conversation, but it's really kind of threading the needle there at that point. But outside of that, there really isn't anything that, that this team can't do well defensively. Hell, they've got the, the gold winning or gold glove winning pitcher on the mound uh, every fifth day. So uh, the, the defense isn't that bad. Yeah. And, you know, I'm one of those guys who's had that conversation. Well, I don't know conversation implies that people talk back to me rather than me just shouting into the distance they ought to they ought to swap (laughs) Bregman and Correa but Gurriel has been interesting to me because I think he's fine as a third baseman I think he's worth the contract I think the bat plays there I think he's fine defensively but if he's still growing into first base and I don't know that the bat is good enough to carry him at first base and I don't know if that matters when your catcher's hitting like Brian McCann and your shortstop's hitting like Correa but is that a is that a hole that you think they might address? Because, you know, I don't really know what you get out of A.J. Reed at this point. So I don't know if that's a, something they might try to address internally or if they'll just let Gurriel sort of stick it out. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, notably involving Alex Bregman. You know, he's a guy that I might consider moving for pitching help. And we'll talk we'll probably talk about the rotation, too. But what do you make of, of Gurriel at, at first base and the, the way the infield's shaken out? I'm not necessarily against having Gurriel here. He's, I, I would have probably been a guy that said, "Hey, let's." AJ Reed really hasn't gotten a fair shake in the majors yet. Uh, he's scarily turning more into John Singleton as the uh, the season has gone on in AAA, which uh, uh, is a little terrifying with uh, some of his metrics. But I, I don't think there's an out, outside option that I would have improved upon. The, the, the Astros' first base situation has been pretty terrible uh, almost the entirety of Jeff Luno's. Uh, tenure because they've gone through red, retread through retread retread and and Gurry at least is league average which is I think an improvement by a vast improvement of what they've had the past few years. So you mentioned or alluded to Keuchel there a second ago and of course he has been the best pitcher on this rotation. He has given the Astros the ace that they had in the past when he was that guy and wasn't last year and that was the big concern coming into this year. Do the Astros have a top of the rotation starter? Turns out maybe they have two but Keuchel certainly has looked like one Can you just explain for people who haven't watched Keiko regularly, he throws the fewest pitches in the strike zone of any starting pitcher in the major leagues, and yet he doesn't walk anyone. He keeps getting guys to swing. Why is that? How does that work? You would think that just looking at the numbers and never seeing Keiko pitch, you'd say, well, if he's never going to throw strikes, eventually batters are going to catch on. They're going to just stop swinging and and let him walk them. But it doesn't work that way. Well, when everything tails out of the zone and every single pitch is, is I like to think that the Dallas Keiko's game translates even with how lack of velocity he has because he just he, he is able to read swings and you're able to read at bats able to play off of that and choose his strengths and be able to have everything dip out of the zone at the last second so everything is weak contact. I'm not going to act like a pitching expert, but I'm Dallas Keuchel is so fun to watch just because you can tell there is the, any pitcher that I've watched, even back to Roy Oswald or something that, that 10 years ago here, there's clearly a chess game going on when you're watching Dallas Keuchel pitch. He is he, he is absolutely battling that pit, that batter and trying to figure out 
how they're reacting to when Dallas Keuchel throws pitch. Now that's where uh, last year he was having a lot of trouble of, uh, of they were attacking him early and anytime he would throw a straight fastball here, he was giving up a lot of home runs. I, I, I won't say that he's just figured out his new tricks uh, this season. That's made him better. But I think more, it's just a, a healthy off season of rest has really kind of have rejuvenated him. And I, I think so if Keuchel and McCullers are healthy, I think that's perfectly fine to go into the playoffs. And at this point, even though it's late May, I feel like we can comfortably talk about the Astros as a mm-hmm. playoff team. But if you go into the postseason with Keuchel and McCullers and even Charlie Morton's pitched pretty well when he's been healthy. But the question is, are McCullers, can you count on McCullers and Morton to be healthy at the right time? So how much does do you think that those guys are going to be healthy by, you know, come the end of the season? And how much does that influence your calculus of whether you want them to go out and maybe trade, if not Bregman, then maybe somebody like Francis Martez for another starting pitcher who you'd want to see in a postseason rotation? Because I don't, you know, I don't think you want Mike Fires in his home run rate uh, starting game four of the ALCS. Oh God! If, if Mike Fires is the one they roll out in any any playoff start, I, I will. I just looked it up. Like his home run count, it's it's like a telethon. Like the thing just keeps on scrolling. Because I thought he was at like fourteen. I just looked it up while while we were talking, and he's up to eighteen now in fifty two innings. It's just unbelievable. Absolutely leading the majors. Um, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, with the starting pitching, uh, I would say that I will probably not not in the minority, but I definitely know that there's the the calls to pick up any ace. Uh, starting pitcher have been been loud and clear from Astros fans that I, but I think the Astros have enough to make some noise in the playoffs uh, definitely if you have a healthy Dallas Keuchel and Lance McCullers you're going to have a four-man rotation uh, and and try to throw out Keuchel as much as possible during the playoffs I've been happy with the way Charlie Morton's pitch and I, I think if you can get a healthy Colin McHugh back I mean right now the Astros have three starting pitchers on the DL that all they were they were hoping to lean on uh, right now, and they haven't even touched into uh, any of their prospects or anybody that they have at AAA that they're that they'd be have comfortable rolling out there. Uh, so I think they have enough depth to do it. But if you really want that definitive, uh, to use an example from the Astros history, Randy Johnson kind of move, this feels like the right time to do it. Yeah, well, the Astros entered the season with the third best farm system ranking from Baseball America. So in addition to having the best record in baseball, they also have one of the richest systems that they could draw from if they do want to make a trade. But yeah, I mean, the pitching... That seems like the area to upgrade, and yet it's also been really good. Only the Indians have a higher staff strikeout rate. So we talked about, I mean, any defensive issues there might be would be minimized by the fact that this team doesn't allow a whole lot of balls in play. And you've got McCullers and Morton striking up people. You've got podcast guest Chris Davinsky and Giles and Michael Feliz and Brad Peacock, of all people, with sky-high strikeout rates. So it's a pretty solid bullpen, too. Even if there's a, even if there's some uncertainty toward the back of the rotation, there are a lot of innings-eater-type guys who can miss bats in the bullpen, too, even if it's not, aside from Giles, maybe your traditional shutdown flamethrower types. Yeah, it's. It, I think the bullpen has been one of the uh, under-talked about kind of absolutely uh, strength of the team now kind of uh, kind of options here. You have uh, guys that have really kind of jumped on and and added a ton of value like Brad Peacock. I mean, I can't even imagine <laughs> that of all people, uh, a guy that the, the Astros had traded for, I think back in 2013 or 2012, is still making an impact on the roster at, at this point after being so just almost almost useless for the past two years. I think that there really isn't any kind of guy I would I would add in the bullpen if I needed to outside of maybe a left-handed pitcher. Tony Sip has struggled is is probably putting it lightly over the last year and and, and change. And definitely, I feel like if you're going to do an upgrade, you need to do it now because you're starting to have some of the guys that at the top of your top thirty here are going to soon have diminishing returns of value of uh, that we that the team saw with Jonathan Singleton. Uh, I mean, Reed, Derek Fisher, guys like that need to be turned into something uh, at some point or turned into uh, major league players. Yeah. Who's the most expendable given blockages at the big league level or, or players at the same position, that sort of thing? I, I would say probably lean towards AJ Reed or uh, Colin Moran. It, it depends on, I, I feel like there we could, if, if I asked, even pulled my staff that, that who would have the most value for anybody, but it seems like there's a lot of 
infield depth the Astros system has right now that they need to turn into something. Yeah, I'd be inclined to trade Reed Moran or Fisher just because, I mean, all three of those guys have aspects of their game that I just really have never liked. And, you know, where do you put Moran? Where do you put Fisher even at this point? Mm-hmm. But I don't know who who that goes. And Like that package doesn't get you Chris Archer if right. that's what you're after, but you might not need him. It, that'll definitely get you a pretty decent lefty, any one of those guys. But if you throw Martez into that deal, that doesn't that that still keeps you with Bregman. So I mean, that's there. I feel like there's some in a lot of these quality pieces you can throw in there and add a front line. You not have to give up Bregman, Martez, and enter Kyle Tucker or something like some insane package that the, I don't think Jeff Luna will ever do. Yeah, I I think I he definitely feels kind of prospect huggy to me. But at, at the same time, like I don't. They're in a nice position because I don't think they need another pitcher either. I think it would be nice if they went out and got one, but in that sort of all in 2014 A's kind of kind of way. But, you mm-hmm. know, you see how that worked out for them. So they're going to be fine. They're going to be have Keuchel and maybe McCullers or Morton uh, heading into the, the postseason. So if that deal never materializes, I don't think they have to go out of their way to, to force it. I think if he does make a deal, he's gonna get he's gonna go for someone that he has a lot of control over. Of course, the price is gonna be higher, but he's always. Anytime I've spoken to him, it's always been any target is always about having control for the long term. Do you find this to be an aesthetically pleasing team as as far as play style goes? Like, is this a fun team? Oh, you were asking about Guriel's hair. That's, that's <laughs> well, yeah, that, aesthetically. I know pleasing. the answer to that. Yeah, oh, but absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but just in terms of how they play, the personality is. That type of thing. I imagine after you go from a 51 win team to a team that's been on a 114 win pace in the span of four years or so, you'd probably be enjoying this no matter what and however they were winning. But do you find this to be an objectively pleasing baseball team the way that, say, the Royals of a couple of years ago were fun? They were running and they were putting balls in play and they were making great defensive plays. And even if you didn't think they were quite as good as their actual records suggested they were still a whole lot of fun are the astros that way too absolutely uh, i think that if you watch any of the 2015 team you heard about club astro that every, after every win they would they would pull out some uh, party lights and a smoke machine and enjoy themselves mm-hmm. and that team still is there that core is what started that they've only done is they've added josh reddick and he's been an absolute treasure of just weird absurd things like starting the Ric Flair woo at ball games now and handing out a championship belt and every part of this, I don't, I'd like to maybe ask for an outside person say, is there anyone really on this team that anyone hates or like it even dislikes? <laughs> like that, that's where I, I, I kind of think of, I see this team and I see everyone with a big smile on their face. And maybe if you don't like that and you take it the wrong way, I think of George Springer's Springer smile, and, and I say that, that sounds very weird to even say, but that this is what this team is, is they're just enjoying the game. Yeah, McCann yeah. was sort of co- controversial for a while, but I feel right. like that, I feel like the reputation almost outstripped the truth. Like he had, he was just like really prickly for a couple months and, and he never lived that down. Um, mm-hmm. Astros fans certainly didn't like Carlos Beltran for a while, but they seem to, <laughs> to be coming around on him. Is the, is Reddick where the woo came from? Cause I thought there was like a, a TCU baseball yes, overlap. Yes. And, but so that that's exactly came what from Reddick. No, 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 that's, that was, that, that's, that's the, the he's in, he's helped propel that, but no, absolutely is a, and there's an actual conversation I had with someone at the ballpark when that first started. Apparently, as some TCU extra inning it was, thing. Yeah, it was it was the College World Series in 2014. They went 15 innings against Virginia and uh, and Derek Fisher of all people. But yeah, they started wooing, and I I, I just saw it because it was Texas like that had uh, filtered down and to the Astros. But like you're you're hearing it all over ballparks throughout MLB this year. So I thought it might be something different. No, no, absolutely. Someone from that was actually starting it in the Crawford boxes uh, was tweeting at the Crawford boxes account about it. Well, we've just been gushing for 25 minutes here, so I've been searching for something negative I could say about the Astros. I think I've found it. Bad base running team. They rank last according to baseball prospectuses, base running runs. They're 27th according to Fangrass base running runs. 
they just don't steal a whole lot or particularly efficiently. I guess they are not doing an incredible job of taking the extra base, which is fine because usually they're hitting a home run anyway, and it doesn't even matter. But base running, not a great base running team. There's the Achilles heel of this Astros team. And a lot of that's from uh, Jose Altuve, all people. Uh, he seems yeah. to be a tad bit more aggressive and then turned himself into an out of pretty uh, early in the season this year. He did that a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. But even, you know, Springer, we were talking about as a potential 30, 40 steal guy. He's 0 for 2 this year. Correa hasn't even attempted one this year. And, you know, Correa is not a burner, but you'd expect two months into the season for him to have at least tried. Yeah, they all, I mean, everyone on this roster besides maybe Beltron and McCann and Gaddis have some speed to them. So, yeah, it is a little surprising this season to kind of not see them attempted very much. But when, like you guys said, if they're hitting, they're not going to don't really need to. Yeah. And speaking of Correa, he had a 658 OPS in April. He had a well over a thousand OPS in May. His his full season stats are uh, maybe about what you would have expected from Carr's career or, or hoped for if he took a step forward. About 50% better than league average. Is that about where you would put him? Would you just split the difference between his April and and May, which were on totally opposite sides of the scale? Or do you think this is the real breakout we've all been waiting for and now he is just going to be amazing for the rest of the year? I want to say it's, I wish it's the the breakout. Um, I want to say there is some, I want to say there's some world baseball classic linger that kind of happened because Jose Altuve had just as much struggles during the month of April. But I want to say split the difference, but maybe a little bit more than that because it's it's Correa really has been a special player. Uh, I don't know if you want to have that sophomore slump kind of thing last year, but I, I feel like he is taking another step, and you've really kind of seen him this this month here has been really really another level for for him. So this is my last one. Maybe the answer to this is Correa, but one thing I've harped on the Astros a lot is they're a top five market and they're not spending like it. You look the look at the payroll, even with all the money they spent over the past year or two, there's probably another $50 million a year easy in terms of payroll that they could spend. So where would you want to spend it? Do you, would you want them to try to dip into free agency or is there, you know, I know Correa has said like if the has said he's not eager to sign an extension, but if the right offer comes along, then he'd, you take it. So where would you like to see that money go? If we're talking about in the long term here, obviously, uh, I don't really see there's any kind of pitching that I want to go out there and add that's, that's let's say, David Price or uh, any, anybody. The, the big fish they've had in the past season, I feel like the team's going to have to trade for that, like a Chris Sale trade this past offseason. So I would really, I like to think the way that Jeff Luno builds his team is trying to build a window as big as possible for success. And part of that is has been going cheap. Ownership has preached uh, up and down that the low payroll has been because their TV deal fell apart. I think most people in baseball probably know, hey, that's not necessarily 100% the truth, and you still could go pay uh, and go out there and be really heavy into free agency. The team was really successful in 2015. They did draw pretty well in 2016. There, There is money there. But I really would like to use that money that they've had and kind of lock up. Jose Altuve is not going to be on a cheap deal forever. Carlos Correa is not going to be on a cheap deal forever. Uh, you, you need to lock them up going forward here. I mean, Dallas Keuchel is going to be in need a new contract this offseason. You've got to start paying your big fish. All right. So the verdict, the Astros are really good. And if they can make a Randy Johnson trade, they should do that. But uh, otherwise, they're in pretty well, good not, shape. No, Randy Johnson's really old now. You want somebody. <laughs> yeah. I still think Randy Johnson out of the pen, lefty specialist. I could see it. I could see yeah, it happening. Yeah, there's your lefty. Yeah. That's your Tony yeah. Sip replacement. Yeah. <laughs> they desperately needed Tony Sip replacement. Yeah. All right. So Ryan Dunsmore is riding the Astros star to the top. You can catch him on your TV screens, hear him on your podcasts, find him on your Twitter at D underscore more. That's M O R E 55. And read him writing all the time at Crawfish Boxes. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so as we have established, the Astros are excellent. One of our guests from the most recent episode, Rob Arthur, wrote something for 538 about how unusual it is for a team to make the dramatic improvements in a fairly short span of time that the Astros have made after their rebuilding Nadir. And the same was true of the Cubs. And Rob looked at it using numbers that you can go read in his article. I won't explain the full methodology, but essentially he said it 
it's something like one in a thousand for a team that was terrible, like the Astros were, to make the sort of strides that they have. And so the question I have is whether we've been spoiled the last few years, whether the Cubs and the Astros have ruined rebuilding or inflated our expectations for what a rebuilding team can be, should be, and how quickly that can happen. Because these two teams were among the worst teams in baseball a few years ago. They have now been a couple of the best teams in baseball this year. Last year, Cubs, of course, defending world champions. Astros, perhaps World Series favorite right now. So is this the default now? Do you think when a team says we're rebuilding, we're tearing it down, that fan base says, okay, we're going to be the next Astros or Cubs. And is that a realistic expectation? And will anything less than that be disappointing from now on? Well, anything less than that will probably be disappointing. I think the Cubs hit on a lot of stuff and they drafted really well, getting Bryant and Schwarber. Well, you know, Schwarber up until last year and Ian Happ. And like they they got through a really good run of, of early draft picks. They seem to hit on every trade on every free agent signing. And they had what felt like a really good sense of timing as those pieces mm-hmm. came together, whether it was adding free agents or making trades. And even beyond that, it feels like they got really lucky. Like last year yeah. just sort of felt kind of early for all that to come together. Like mm-hmm. if you're writing that story, like it felt like they needed to suffer another playoff loss or two before they finally won the World Series. But, you know, that's a team with just unfathomable amounts of money with one of the best front offices that's ever been assembled in big league history. And everything had to go right still for them to eke out an extra inning win in game seven of the World Series. And the Astros, they're great as currently constituted, but you look at their, the reason you tank ostensibly is to get high draft picks. And I don't think they've drafted that well. Like, I think they've just sort of been okay at it because they mm-hmm. nailed the Correa pick and particularly because going for Correa instead of Byron Buxton allowed them to sign Lance McCullers. That's an obvious win. And since then, like Appel, Mark Appel has been a bust. Brady Aiken was a write-off. Derek Fisher, I'm not sold on. And they made a couple of puzzling picks. Like, I thought A.J. Reed was fine as a second rounder, but I would have made him a pitcher rather than a position player. And, you know, you look at guys like Ken Emanuel, who has completely burned out. He was a third rounder. They sent a lot of guys to Atlanta between um, Fultonavich and Andrew Thurman and Rui Ruiz. And those are three high draft picks that got them back. Evan Gaddis, which was kind of puzzling. Like, I think, but the thing about that is just that churn allowed them to give a lot of playing time to guys like Keuchel and Jose Altuve. And, you know, there's a, an MVP contender from last year, a Cy Young winner that you just sort of developed out of nowhere. And they've done that with a few guys. So they've just had so many shots at it. Like they haven't shot for, for a particularly high percentage in terms of player development, but they gave themselves so many chances that they managed to get the backbone of a really good roster. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's, you know, it's unfair to expect this start from any team under any circumstances, but I think they showed that the real value of taking that approach is you're if you're willing to just tank a couple seasons, you don't have to be Theo Epstein to build a team this good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the draft pick aspect of tanking rebuilding in baseball has been exaggerated. It just particularly with relation to the NBA, where that's the whole right. ball game. Yeah. In baseball, it just isn't as essential. You have years between most draft picks and their big league debuts. It's much less predictable. The difference between picks at the top of the draft is often fairly small in terms of expected value. So I don't see that as the primary motivation. But if you're willing to be really bad for a few years, then of course you You can trade all of your passable players for prospects and get that long-term value when other teams are looking for short-term value and you can save your money and then it all comes together in theory a few years later. And yeah, I think Theo Epstein has acknowledged that they got a little lucky. I think the plan was sound and I think it makes sense that it worked, but you know, it worked better than you could have expected if you were to simulate the Cubs rebuild with the same executives involved uh, a million times. That has to be one of the best outcomes, the one that actually happened just because yeah, you can trade for undervalued pitchers like Jake Arrieta and Kyle Hendricks, but you don't expect them to be the best pitchers in baseball necessarily. That 
that's that's a, a high percentile outcome, I think. So, yeah, I I just think that there is this expectation now that if you rebuild, that means that hey, a few years from now, everything will be sunshine and rainbows and enough teams are doing this now that sooner or later we're going to get a team that it just doesn't work out that well for like their prospects don't pan out they make unlucky or unwise choices when it comes to supplementing with free agents and they get better of course but maybe they never make the playoffs maybe they never win a division maybe they're never one of the best teams in baseball the way that the Astros and the Cubs have become and you look around the league and I don't know if there's a, a no doubt rebuilding success out there. I think you could maybe single out the Brewers who have done it differently from the Astros and the Cubs in that they have not been completely terrible. They have tried to put a, a competitive team on the field and they're a winning team right now in what was supposed to be maybe their low point. And I don't know that you can look and say, yes, they definitely have the ceiling of a hundred plus win team, but they have done it without all the heartache in the interim. So that's a point in their favor. But you look around at the other teams and you've got the White Sox and you've got the Braves, you've got the Phillies who seemed like they were on the way up. Yeah, and they would are just <laughs> they would have been my pick for the yeah. best situated team at the end right. of last season. But they like everybody is backed up for, you know, Michael Franco, yeah. Herrera, Aaron Nolas got hurt. J.P. Crawford isn't developing. Mm -hmm. I think the Braves are set up pretty well, but all their pitching talent is just so far away. Like they yeah. might be four or five years out as is. And right. yeah, apart from that, I'd, I'd probably say the White Sox are in as good a position as anybody just because of the massive talent that they brought back in those couple trades this past offseason. Yeah, the Braves are doing it differently from the Astros and the Cubs who built around position players and those seem to be the more dependable players and the Braves are saying, no, we're a pitching organization. We're going to stick with that. So and going high school like, heavy too. Right, which a uh, riskier approach. And yeah, and then you've got teams like the Padres, you've got the Reds, you've got the A's. I don't know if they're rebuilding or, or what they're doing exactly. So you've got several teams sort of at the low point in their competitive cycles right now. And the more teams are doing this simultaneously, the more difficult I think it is for any one of them to do what the Astros and the Cubs have done because you've got a, a larger pool of potential sellers and, and prospect acquirers. And so there's just more competition. And so look at all of these teams, obviously they're all going to get better than, than where they are now, but I don't know that we can count on all of them to get up to this point. And, and I don't know that it was as unlikely as the numbers make it appear that the Astros and the Cubs would take these dramatic leaps in short amounts of time. Because if you look at the entire history of 50 or 60 win teams, some of those teams had no plan and were run really poorly. And the Cubs and the Astros were never that. You could always look at them and see the contender shaping up a few years in the future. Of course, there was the Sports Illustrated cover in whenever it was, 2014, proclaiming the Astros as the 2017 World Series winners. It just seemed like you could see it coming in a way that for most terrible teams, you can't because maybe the idea of completely tearing down a team and building from scratch is a fairly recent innovation. Like sometimes it would happen by accident, but the intentional aspect to these two teams mm -hmm. maybe set them apart from a lot of terrible teams of the past. But yeah, I, I don't know that you can look at any of those teams that are, you know, seller dwellers now or were not really intending to compete in 2017 and say that their path to the playoffs, their path to preeminence is quite as clear as it was for the Cubs and the Astros. So we might look back at these two teams and say, that's the model. That's how it should work. That's how it can work. But that is definitely not how it always works. And one of these fan bases is going to be disappointed. I don't know which one it will take years to say. Yeah. I, so there are two points that I sort of want to bounce off of things that you've said and one more uh, that I want to make before we end. And one is that you brought up the intentionality, like the the rebuild and the, you know, the spending a couple years to 
get draft picks and develop talent and trading away players like that's happened. But the intentionality, like it's a whole lot more brazen. And I think that that's so when Moneyball happened and we started, it had this larger effect on business as a whole. Like people started quantifying a lot of things more and looking for ways, you know, the I've said this before, but another way of restating like the hero premise of Moneyball is that you're trying to pay your employees as little as possible and to try to make the gap between how much you pay your employees and how much your employees are worth as large as possible. So mm-hmm. like that sort of gets distorted in a gross in a grotesque way in terms of business. And you see a lot of guys coming from finance, NBA types coming back into baseball in the past five to 10 years. And it's getting reflected and distorted again. And like, I think there's something very, you know, I don't take like a strong normative stance against tanking because, you know, I, I take sort of a long view towards my own fandom, maybe less in baseball now, but certainly in, in basketball where like I'm a Sixers fan and I've been wholeheartedly behind the, the process, even as it's been criticized, but there's something very like gross and hyper rational and late capitalist about this that, <laughs> you know, I think that's not to condemn the very intentional rebuild that teams like the, the Astros and Cubs did, but it, you know, it's just something to, to keep in mind. Um, mm-hmm. The second thing is like somebody's going to be disappointed. Like this is something that really gets lost. I feel like in a lot of team centric analysis is like you look over the next five years or so and you say the Cubs probably want to win multiple World Series in that in that time. And the same thing is true of the Red Sox and the Dodgers uh, and probably now the Astros. And we're not that far from the Yankees having those expectations. And like only one team gets to win at a time. And only two teams win the pennant and only 10 teams make the playoffs every single year. Like, I feel like when we're evaluating team success, particularly over a long period of time and evaluating in terms of playoff appearances and championships, we don't pay enough attention to the fact of of how zero sum sports are like you could do everything right and still not win a thing. And I looking at it that way might be a little cold, but like somebody is going to be disappointed because that's just how sports works. And the. The last thing that I want to say is I my hope with this sort of thing, like if you're rebuilding, you're obviously cutting payroll and that's fine in the short term. As long as I just want teams, particularly big market teams. And I talked about this with Ryan and I've harped on the Astros a lot for this. But, you know, we're coming to this point with the Phillies and the Yankees and the Cubs reinvested in the team particularly big market teams and with revenues being what they are and salaries being what they are now, big market is a much larger tent than it's ever been. I just, I really hope that fans and local media hold the team to account that they, when they're not spending on the team in the short term, those savings get reinvested into the team, particularly in player salaries in the long term, or mm-hmm. whether that, you know, if fans are still going to keep paying for a diminished product in the short term, they deserve either a better product or cheaper tickets or, you know, cheaper merchandise or cheaper concessions in the, in the short term, they deserve to get that money back in the, you know, at some point in the long term. So I would like to see, you know, I've got no problem with teams going in the tank, even for multiple years at a time. I just hope that fans and, and labor don't get screwed as a result. All right. Well, we should probably wrap up. We will be back with another episode on Monday. We're going to be done with most of the regionals by Monday. So we'll have an update <laughs> on that. And Yes, please. <laughs> this is going to happen. You're just going to have to grin and bear it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. All right. So I will talk to you then. See you, Michael. Bye. For a great shave at a great price, join Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the Executive Razor and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash MLBshow.